This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. All right. The economy has figured large in our thinking, uh, particularly uh, COVID has been a bad hit to the economy. Many think not as bad as the Great Recession, but certainly it's had its impact. Uh, we have with us this week one of the Valley's premier economists, Jim Rounds of, Jim of Rounds Consulting. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Here's our game plan. Um, I, I, I kind of have four four segments noted. One is let's talk about the economy, how we're doing, and then uh, a possibility of uh, structural changes to the economy. Obviously, we've made some adaptations uh, based on COVID. Uh, I personally think some of those are going to stick. Uh, we are doing this interview right now uh, via Zoom, and uh, that has been a response to COVID. I have a feeling that uh, this may stick. Uh, frankly, neither of us had to go into the station to do the do the interview, and that's a plus. Uh, but there's we can talk about that and lots of other changes. Uh, the uh, then I want to move in the COVID uh, pandemic response, and particularly the president's 1.9 or thereabouts trillion proposal. And then I have some pointed questions about aspects of that and getting to the issues of uh, uh, incentives. But even before all of that, I want to ask you, uh, essentially, you know, you're, what is an economy, what is economics in the sense that you know, at one level, I know, you know, you're in a light field. I do survey research. A lot of economics is based on surveys. Um, I mean, I was at the University of Michigan. The survey of consumer sentiment is one of the mainstays of kind of predicting what's going on. But I look at eminent uh, economists like uh, Paul Krugman and Arthur Laffer probably agree on about uh, nothing. Um, and sometimes, as Harry Truman, you know, once pointed out, sometimes economists don't even agree with themselves. You remember the old statement? He said, uh, well, I got an economist. I brought him in here. And he says, well, on the one hand, this and on the other hand, this. He says, I want you to find me a one armed economist. <laughs> so where is you? Where is you when you're when you're deriving your opinions and your projections, what kind of places does it come from? And how much of that is purely from the data and how much of that is interpretation and judgment? I, I think it's a combination of both. So you have to look at the basic data and data is available more than it ever has been. Uh, I remember in, in school, it was many decades ago, having to go to the library to dig up a couple of statistics. Now you can get it on your phone on your way to go have a beer with a friend. Uh, it, it's just a different world, but there's a lot of people that don't know how to interpret it properly. And a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of economists tend to have their own specific niche. So if they tend to work on income tax issues on the conservative side of the aisle, that's what drives the economy. If they work on education issues, 
wages, education spending drives the economy. Well, really, it's dozens of things that drive the economy. And I, I find the, the economists I disagree with the most are usually the ones that dig in on their issue. Uh, I always like to say politicians follow their own political book of dogma. I think economists do a little bit as well. But there are balanced ones out there. And uh, given that I studied economics but some, spent some time in public policy at the state capitol here, I got to understand kind of the breadth of the complexity. And I think it evens you out a little bit more. You know, I developed a view of uh, economics, and it was kind of an enlightenment to me. Before we went on, I was talking about it. Economist in this town was a very, very well-known guy by the name of Jim Chalmers. Now, we're probably going back to the 80s, so it's been better for a while. And we were doing a job with him. And he was trying to do projections for a potential new town on the far west side of Phoenix. And he had us do these surveys asking people, essentially, we've got various models and plans and pricing and how likely would you be to buy? And we had the surveys essentially had four categories. And I said, are you very interested somewhat? Not very, not at all. And I said, I can tell you what, based on our survey research, I can tell you which people are more interested and which people are less interested. And I can tell you, I can guarantee you that the people who say they're very interested are more interested than the people who say they're somewhat interested. But I said, Jim, what I can't tell you from the survey is how many people are going to buy. He said, and, and, and I said, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing, you know, this is exactly what you want. It says, I just don't get how you get from that to a number at the end. I, I, I'm just, there's nothing in my discipline that allows that. He says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then we get to the end of the project. And I said, well, what are you doing? All right, here's all your data, mountains of data and all that. And he said, well, he said, I take the uh, people who say they're uh, very interested. And I cut that by 50%. So I multiply it by 0.5. And then I take the people who say they're somewhat interested and I cut that by 90%. So I multiply it by 0.1 and the other two I count as zero. I said, well, maybe that's true, but how do you know it's 0.5 and not 0.6 or 0.43? He said, well, I just assumed it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, is that what you do? And, and I do know that part of what you do is you can test the resiliency of uh, the robustness, I think is a technical term, of an idea by saying, all right, I'll play, I'll change the 0.5 to 0.3 and see what happens. Is it still viable at 0.3 instead of 0.5? But that was an enlightened me for, for, for me, and it reminded me of the old story of the economist and, uh, and another fellow who were trapped, starving on a desert uh, island somewhere in a, in a crate, um, uh, washes up to shore and it's filled with canned food. And the economists there are sitting there smiling. And the other guy's going crazy. He said, you know, we got all this food, but we can't open it. And the economist says, well, you know, I just assumed I had a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 get, I get that perspective. And uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, the quality of the analyses, and I see this all the time in public policy, it, it really varies. But the, the way that we've been more successful about communicating and trying to, you know, influence good positive policy going through is that uh, I, 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 too, like to look at survey data um, because it's good to hear what people are saying. 
But I also then like to look at the equivalent on other data points like state tax collection. So let's say a survey was going at, are you going to be increasing spending in a particular category? And people are like, yeah, probably. But the data is a little bit different. But there's always a story. And it's usually the problem is the economists oversimplifying it, but there's always a story. So if the survey data matches up with the economic data, you feel good that you know what, what you're putting together and recommending is accurate. If there's a discrepancy, then you got to find why there's a discrepancy. And sometimes that's just as important. That's but almost got, always the real story is, all right, this is discrepancy. And people expect everything to mesh exactly. And it never does, but it's usually in the quest. It, it's like, for example, in attitudinal survey work research, I ask you about your attitude about some subject, and then I change the question and I ask it a little bit different way and I get a different answer. And people always will ask me, well, which one is right? I said, no, that's the wrong question. If I know that you answered this way when I worded it this way, and then you changed your mind when I worded it another way, Look at what the difference is in the question. It's not like there's some something called an attitude out there that has an absolute. It's that I have come to a greater understanding of what you your sensibilities are by the fact that you answered those questions differently. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's helpful when you have a different approach to different assignments. So let me give this example. You'll like this one. So I had to do this. Uh, it it might have been our best work to date. I had to do an analysis of um, what kind of economic benefits could be derived from additional infrastructure spending. And this is when people were talking about I-11 a lot and things like that. And, and we did this for the governor's office at the time. And we couldn't calculate with certainty what having a very robust physical infrastructure system would be for the state. It, 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 will it translate into additional economic development? But it would be such a big investment. And what I did is I, uh, I, I was very methodical. I, I had a couple of good friends at the Goldwater Institute, and I'd take them out, and we would uh, brainstorm on it. But my main point is uh, I said, do you think that if we made this investment, we could increase the rate of job growth in the state by one-tenth of one percent? And they were like, okay. I said, well, at that particular level, we just paid for the road. So sometimes you don't need the exact number. You put it you in just the just know that it's, that it's going to push. The, you know that your conservative estimate of how good it, how much it will do is good enough. So the answer is do it. We'll be back. We'll run it. We'll, we'll be back. We'll, we'll uh, pick this discussion up with Jim Rounds and the economy in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we are here back again with Jim Rounds, top economist, and we were talking about what is an economist and the nature of the field. But I want to get something very substantive in in this segment before we go to the second half here. Paint us a picture. What's the economy look like right now? We know we're at some level we're hurting, but I think most economists and others agree that uh, we're not anywhere near as bad as we were in the Great Recession, are we? No, and, and that's especially true for Arizona. So for the U.S., during the Great Recession, uh, lost about, um, uh, what was it, 7 million jobs. 
And uh, during the COVID recession, it was about 21 million jobs. So far worse for the U.S. than in Arizona in terms of the ratio. In Arizona, we lost 300,000 jobs during the Great Recession and about 300,000 during the COVID recession. But we recovered, I think we're up to around 70, 75% recovery in the state where the U.S. is still lagging some. So we're going to get all of our jobs back probably by the end of this calendar year, where it took years and years after the Great Recession. So just in very simple terms, the economy is doing well, but different segments of the economy got impacted differently. Those with lower income jobs really got hit hard. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, the obvious difference is if I think most of the white collar jobs found that they could work from home. That's right. And that that's, that may continue into the future. You know, after the Great Recession, people were thinking this is just a temporary movement of people from single family to multifamily and things like that. It ended up being more permanent. I think what we just went through is going to make a shift in the need for office space, how we communicate. But I see this as an efficiency game. If we can become more efficient and lower costs, that's going to increase profits. And I think my guess is it's not that will it's now a fair question to everybody to say, can you work from home? Is it better? And it's probably not for everybody because uh, it is probably good for some, not good for. For example, uh, do you have a place in your house that you can set up and and you can work productively? Uh, Then it may be a plus. You're saving commuting time if you have to do sort of minimal child care at home, then you can, you know, you can, you can, you can do that and work around it. But on the other end, if you're play, if, if you are totally distracted, then, uh, then you're not a good bet for, and I, my guess is employers will probably start looking at employees case by case and saying who can do what. I agree. Uh, this was an unfortunate experiment, but it's going to be an experiment that's going to yield some good things coming out of it. I do know I get a lot of friends work in major, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks and whatever in Silicon Valley, and they haven't set foot on site in, uh, you know, since this thing started. And they I think they've extended most of them out there going out at least another six months. And a lot of them are liking it. Yeah, uh, we, our, our particular business, I, I like to come into the office uh, uh, some of the time because this is just where a lot of stuff is and it's just more efficient. Uh, but I let the other guys uh, kind of rotate depending on their what they'd like to do. So we try to keep the interaction minimal, but it's working just as efficiently now. And I was surprised at that because we have to communicate a lot during the day on what we're analyzing, especially when we're teaming up. And just the way the technology is now, it's not hard to do. And I think the meetings are probably more efficient. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how many times I had to drive downtown and back for a 15-minute meeting. I kill an hour and a half. Now I'm using that other time to take care of other uh, projects and also spending some more time with the kid, maybe hitting some golf balls. Uh, You know, quality of life. If you know, help with quality of life matters. I think it has implications where where people can live. There are exorbitantly expensive places, Silicon Valley, Manhattan, and whatever, and uh, it, it's going to allow uh, people freedom to 
not necessarily stay in those highly expensive places. Now, the, some of the interesting stuff is Facebook, their first foray into that was to say, yeah, we're gonna let people move out, but we don't wanna pay them the Silicon Valley wages. We'll be back uh, in just a few months. We'll talk about uh, sort of the president's proposal and dealing with the pandemic and other economic issues when we're back with Jim Rounds in just a moment. News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we are back with economist Jim Rounds talking about all things economy. We've talked a little bit about the economics in general, what it is, uh, kind of what we look like. Uh, I think the consensus or Jim's position, which I agree, we're, we're in we're in better shape than we were in the Great Recession, uh, but a little bit more selective. I think the impact was the takeaway that uh, that uh, blue collar workers got hit a little harder. Not not surprisingly, people who had to go out and work in the world. Uh, uh, Still had, I mean, white collar folks could work from home. Uh, restaurant, bars, people—they got they got crucified. Uh, uh, I know people in construction; they did okay because uh, they worked right through it, and uh, you know, largely outside and whatever. So, but but I, you look at it by industry, and you see things all over the map. For example, uh, the travel industry, air industry, hotels, transportation, recreation, that got slammed big time. Uh, entertainment, nobody goes to the movies. Anybody, pretty good for Netflix, right? Um, uh, restaurants and bars, you know, close to zero. The interesting thing to me there will be uh, when these vaccines become near universal, it, at some point, will people feel more comfortable going out? Will there be two theories? One is there'll be pent up demand and it'll be bigger than ever. The other may be that people got more accustomed to cocooning at home and, you know, uh, decided that uh, Netflix uh, seems pretty good rather than going out to the movie. And I don't know that we know the answers to that because that's how people behave when they, they haven't had a choice now, but they may, you know, when they have a choice, are they going to decide they like some of the things we talked about earlier? Uh, you were talking about how you're, how much time you save from trekking across town for a 15 minute meeting. Nobody, I, I, I'm on a number of boards that uh, I I hope they don't go back to in-person meetings because it seems to me the travel time is a waste of time. So. Yeah, no, 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 I'm with you on that. And I, I do think that a lot of this is going to be permanent, even the social aspect. And, and what was interesting is uh, when we when we made a shift from people spending a big chunk of their money on services that aren't taxed to goods, people were still spending money because of the stimulus package uh, packages. Uh, we ended up seeing an increase in state tax collections and it was because it was a shift in the type of spending. And I don't think that that'll continue. I think that the service expenditures will go up, but I'm very worried about the tourism industry, the amount of money that we yeah. think they lost 
Um, if we can just recover a small portion, it'll pay for some additional marketing that we're recommending. We're hoping that they'll get another $10 million in each of the next two years to promote the state because there is going to be some pent up demand and other states like Colorado and others that are ramping up their advertising are going to take it from us. This well, is that, a that you, you had a gem in there that surprised me. You said sales tax revenues are up. Oh, the state is doing very well in terms of tax collections. And it was primarily because the upper income folks were doing well. Uh, people were taking advantage of low interest rates, but you can do that if you have a certain level of income. And so the upper income folks are doing well. The biggest trough were those making less than 50. And if you break it down into like 20 to 30, 30 to 40, the lower you go, the bigger job impact there was in terms of losses. Well, it also says to me, because uh, sales tax, we don't tax services. That says to me that we are spending less on services and more on stuff. And, and that's what you would see during a recession where you're pulled up in your house. So people are still buying stuff. We recovered all the jobs uh, in transportation because there's still lots of distribution of the materials. But yeah, the the service sector declined, but it'll come back. I, the, the, so I don't I, I don't go out for a haircut or a massage, but I order stuff from Amazon. It's essentially the shift. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And and there's all, all sorts of things like this going on with investments and where we're going with real estate. So uh, unfortunately, we just don't know, but. We can make guesses if, again, you look at things like the surveys that you were talking about and we look at data and we try to tell a story and we ask actually if it makes sense rather than just running an econometric equation and saying a number is greater than one, it's good to go. Sometimes you got to really think about it. Well, and you mentioned surveys. I know there's different there's different kinds of things. One is surveying about actual behaviors like how many employees did you hire or fire last month that's one kind then you have things like the michigan consumer sentiment thing which is how do you how good do you feel about the economy and that may feel slippery and it is but the beauty of it and the reason it's useful is we've got 40 years of data 80 percent of the public feels kind of good about the economy I don't know what that means, but if I've got 40 years of data and I can track that over the last 40 years and see when that number is over a certain percentage, we're doing pretty good, and it tracks with other data, then that becomes very useful, even though by itself, just the abstract. Now, it's sort of like my illusion earlier before, you know, 32% are very interested in buying this house. Well, okay, compared to what? Yeah. And, and sometimes you don't have to be fully accurate. You just you have to pick up inflection points. So when things are turning up or down, um, sometimes you just need to know that a number is greater than some baseline. Like we were talking about earlier. At the or it's worst, going up or down. Like trend. Yeah. So you got to be clever. And when we analyze, you know, some when it's a small you know issue, like a very small city and center for a business location. You, it, it, it doesn't get that complicated. But when you're analyzing big things like and major investments in higher ed, uh, major investments in K-12, uh, criminal justice reform issues, all these big things, we, we just have to be thoughtful. We, we can't do things at the last minute. And unfortunately, at the legislature, you tend up doing a lot of research at the last minute because people come up with new ideas based on what the lobbyists bring them. Uh, if it were me, I would say if you don't have the analysis tied to what you're lobbying for, don't bother showing up. You have to, you have to research stuff to do it well. And it's pretty hard to respond to a last minute request. What would happen if we do this? You you haven't studied everything, every possible thing in in the. You know, I think here's an example of that with COVID. 
uh, they did very rigorous testing of those vaccines with uh, you get a vaccine and then you get a booster three to four weeks later, or three for one, or four for the other. There were two different ones. And we know exactly what happens with this. And then somebody gets the idea, well, what if we were to skip or delay the second uh, vaccine? And the fact is, nobody knows because they didn't test that. And in order to test that, you're talking two to three months for the whole thing and setting up an experiment. And honestly, what any of those folks will tell you is they don't know what the only things they know are the things that they absolutely tested. They can make some inference. Well, we know how the body works. So if we delay it, it'll kind of maybe work just as good, but we don't really know. And, and it seems to me there's a direct analogy to uh, many things economic that you have to do. Um, it, it really is because, uh, and we've been saying this for the last year, the biggest economic stimulus package would be aggressive action on getting the vaccine distributed by a wide margin. And, and by the way, moving to the president's proposal, that's the num- That's probably the most non-controversial part of the whole package. It says, we're gonna crank up vaccines for everybody as fast as humanly possible. That is the numero uno uh, economic development package, as it were. Yep. What do you think is the, after that, what do you think is the most important part of the package? Um, well, since the downturn hit so many uh, lower income folks, uh, you know, we've had that issue with unemployment insurance. And uh, I know Arizona has been criticized for having uh, $240 a week that's less than others. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, proposals at the Capitol right now to raise it. Uh, I think a little bit too high. I think it's something that has to be researched further before we just pick an arbitrary number. But uh, we have to make sure that we take we have to take care of people that are hurting right now. Not everything requires a high return on investment. Uh, but uh, that um, the small business uh, component. Um, I feel like uh, technically a small business is uh, a company that has less than 500 workers. Well, I have most people don't think of that as all that small, but you're absolutely correct. That's the definition. (laughs) Yeah. And so I picture it more like 20 or less. And I know that a lot of larger firms got stimulus uh, money at a pretty sizable level. And it didn't trickle to, I think, those most in need. And and I don't want to have a situation where we, you know, have an extra McDonald's on a corner because a restaurant that's been here for 30 years and was very unique closed. I'm a little bit afraid that if we're not careful with this, we're going to just have a lot of big corporate entities and Applebee's on every corner. Hope you like Applebee's. Well, the, the, what you're, I think you're referring to the payroll, payroll protection uh, program. And invariably what happened was they had to set up a system and you had to apply for this loan. And of course, and they, as you say, small businesses is 500 or less, even though when you say small business, people's minds think the 20 employee, the 10 employee, the mom and pop and family, now, within that, so if, if, if small business, anything from one person up to 500, guess which ones were more savvy to get in there and fill out the forms correctly? Obviously, it were, it were what, what most people would think of as pretty good sized businesses. And so I noticed that the president did a two week uh, uh, hiatus on that, uh, uh, that just concluded. He said, we're only going to take them from the really small ones for the next two weeks to give them a, a shot in there. Um, 
yeah, I always laugh when they when they define they say small business when they want to say how, how you know and people's people are thinking mom and pop and five hundred or less is a class or they're defining small business as anybody who even know people aren't going to even understand that being an escort. Well, right. Donald Trump was an escort. That's an S corporate. That just is the tax way you decide to fix your taxes. It doesn't mean you're small. It means that you you decided to call yourself an S corp and you don't have more than I forget. What is it? Twenty five stockholders or something. So somebody on the stock exchange can't do that. But Donald Trump or somebody extremely wealthy with or development issue, typical developer. Uh, doesn't have more than a couple of dozen people working for them, usually less than a dozen because they hire contractors for everything. Anyway, I talked too much, but we'll be back to, with Jim Round uh, and wrap this up with discussion of uh, uh, where we're going with the economy when we return in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Back with Jim Rounds, we're talking about uh, the economy. Uh, I have a very pointed question. I want to turn to Jim. Uh, economists are always really big on the notion of incentives. That is, if you want somebody to do something, you should make sure that they benefit from doing it. Seems rational enough. Uh, and you often hear this about, as in, for example, an anti-welfare proposal. If we give people, uh, you know, good welfare, then they're not going to be incentivized to get jobs. Now, here's my question. One of the things out there that that people have, that's being proposed is an increase in the minimum wage. They call it a $15 an hour. That, that's really misleading. It's you're talking about a stage. They're talking about putting that in over a five-year period. Not unlike what they did in Arizona, but topped out at 12, but we went from seven to nine to 11. We, we ended up at 12 where we are now, plus inflation. So we're basically at last year's $12 an hour. I think it's 12.15 right now. It's a proposal like that, which would top out higher. Here's the thing that, that I found disincentive to me. The last package had a big temporary bump in the uh, unemployment payment. It added whatever people were getting in their own state. In Arizona, it was as low as $200. And they were going to add $600. They did add $600 a week for that. And I know for some workers, that created a classic disincentive. They were earning in Arizona $800 a week from, and in other states, as much as 1000 And some of those folks, because it was across the board, looked at that and said, if I go back to work, I'm making less. And I think most people agree that's not a that's not a good that's not a good use of money. I don't understand why, frankly, more conservative Republicans who are seem more more concerned about incentives shouldn't be more in favor of uh, an increase in the minimum wage to incentivize people to work as opposed to pouring monies into unemployment, which does not incentivize to that is something to uh buffer uh the impact of unemployment 
I mean, if we wanted, if we were only concerned about incentives, we'd make the unemployment zero because you'd have a maximum incentive. But there are people who get thrown out of work through no fault of their own, and it absolutely provides a cushion. Wouldn't a far more targeted incentive being increasing the wage rate rather than rather than increasing uh, uh, unemployment payment? I, I think the answer is it depends. And so when we're talking about socioeconomic incentives, you know, like people's willingness to work, or we're talking about economic development incentives, they're basically tools that the government utilizes. A tool isn't necessarily good or bad. You could use it properly or you could use it improperly. So you got to figure out what tools to use at the right time. But um, what, my, my bigger problem with the $15 an hour proposal is so much of public policy is decided upon if the statement can be legible on a bumper sticker. $15 an hour minimum wage sounds good. My paper that I might write on why we have to differentiate between cost of living and how it's going to have a different impact depending on different industries, whether it's urban or rural, that's not going to fit on a bumper sticker. So it's very hard to get that message out. Mm -hmm. But I just think we can be more thoughtful on it. The, the fact that Arizona is $12 plus right now is greater than what we're seeing in San Francisco and Seattle, who led this uh, kind of revolution on $15 an hour. It's already, it's already greater in real terms. These are things that we have to think about. A lot of low-cost communities are going to get crushed by this. And I feel like we just need to, there's a better way of doing it. So I think the tool is okay up to a point. Let's not overuse it or underuse it. Let's use it at the right, at the right rate. Fair point, though, wouldn't that, would the answer to that, and I realize it no longer goes to a bumper sticker, to have what we de facto had in some communities, which is, uh, an increase in the minimum wage, but it but it accounts for local cost of living differences. Um, oftentimes, the cost of living difference gets uh, it, well. You have inflation added; they really don't adjust for the cost of living. Oh, and that's the problem. That's why we're in the bind we are in now, because that minimum wage hasn't been touched in 20 years, and it got crucified by inflation. That's right. Uh, when, when I started uh, my first job as a bagger at a grocery store, I made 3.35 an hour. But it was a temporary job. I mean, I stayed there for a few years to pay for school, but I wasn't intending to stay there the whole time. And, and I think what we have to discuss, and this is ignored, this is the most important thing that's ignored when it comes to the minimum wage discussion. Uh, minimum wage is like you're standing on a ladder, you're not climbing up yourself, you're not on a very tall ladder, and you're asking someone to lift the ladder up for you. That's not stable. I want that person to have a taller ladder and education and training so that they can climb the taller ladder and then you don't need to lift it up. I think that would be far more better use of uh, funds than the minimum wage implications that are going to have some negative economic repercussions. I, I feel like there's always going to be except there's always going to be somebody at the bottom of that ladder who for what reason, I mean, I absolutely believe everybody, you know, develop skills to the extent that you can, but there's somebody at the bottom, you know, somebody's going to be schlepping burger at McDonald's and some of that may got automated and that's happening anyway. But um, what's, what do you do with the people at the bottom of the scale is, is so, the real question. We got just less than a minute now. Just yeah, we, we, so we, have to, we have to figure out why they're at the bottom of the scale and it's persistent. Um, if it's something as simple as having some childcare issues, then we figure that out. Uh, but, but we have to identify why some people are stuck. And if they are stuck, you can have unique programs where we're not raising the minimum wage uh, across the board to, to $15 an hour. I, I, I'm in agreement with we have to be fair to people, and uh, that's part of our history. 
you know, it, as a country, you know, we used to have, you know, uh, unrealistic labor laws and, and they've changed, but let's just be smarter about the economics going forward. Good point. Yeah, you know what? We could do a whole show just on min- the policy of minimum wage. <laughs> right. uh, this has been broad ranging. Maybe, maybe we'll have you back and go deeper on uh, on some of these issues because we clearly could. Been a great conversation, Jim Rounds, Rounds Consulting. Uh, appreciate your insight. We'll have we'll be back with another guest in the next in the next think tank. By the way, if you want to reach me, uh, the website is mikeoneal.org, and you can get uh, email and Twitter and Facebook feeds and and the like uh, after that. Returning next week in the think tank.